gentlemen, children of ages above the PG certification range, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am your genial host, Scott Morris, and I'm joined by my equally genial colleague, Greg Eastman. Oh, nothing makes me sadder than the agent lost his bladder in the airplane. Tragic occurrence. Is this uh, the latest Bond tidbits that you've got from the on set? <laughs> Bond? Don't you recognise Don't you recognize Malkovich when you hear him, Scott? It's Con Air, sir. Con Air. Uh, Our audience was with me. Our audience was with me. On which nonsense. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so we have another podcast for you of no fixed agenda. We're going to cover some of the stuff that we've uh, caught up with in the cinema or well, on home release lately. So a whole bunch of stuff ranging from Ghostbusters all the way through to Star Trek, Midnight Special, Jason Bourne, Suicide Squad, Events Day 2 and Finding Dory. So there's something there for all of the family apart from your uncle. Difficult man to please, that guy. <laughs> hey, Scott, I've got a question for you. Can women bust ghosts, or is it all about uh, ethics and games journalism? <laughs> well, as a confirmed social justice warrior, I'm duty-bound to say that uh, women can bust ghosts just as well as men can bust ghosts. Equal ghosts for women! Uh, so yes, we are, of course, talking about Ghostbusters 2016, the reboot that caused a million obnoxious white male voices to suddenly cry out in terror and refuse to be silenced, despite all appeals to logic, sanity, or basic human decency. Uh, uh, well, looking beyond those charming organised hate parades, now that it's out we can judge it on its own merits, and I don't think I've ever been more relieved for a film to be at least passably enjoyable than this one. Whew. As I'm sure you've heard, this Paul Feig-directed outing runs through the basic plot from the apparently idolised 80s original, mm. although I must have missed that memo, raising it to untouchable status. I've only ever remembered it as a reasonably amusing effects showcase. I get uh, I get. I think we spoke about this recently, right? I mean, I get mm. the... I, I used to sort of idolise it. How much of that is down to the fact it was, I think, the second film I ever saw in a cinema, yeah. and the first time I went with my whole family to the cinema. But oh yes, objectively, that movie has not aged well um, and it is fun and disposable at best it is not the be all and end all that so many people have enshrined it as yeah and surely if anything else if you're going to scream about oh ruining my childhood did your childhood not take into account watching Ghostbusters 2 which is execrable <laughs> thank you I know so many people who like Ghostbusters 2 and it makes me feel like I'm taking crazy pills <laughs> that, that, that film is a goddamn dumpster fire <laughs> no redeeming qualities whatsoever. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, to the matter at hand, here we have a respectable physicist, Erin Gilbert, uh, Kristen Wiig's character. Uh, she's taking issue with her former research partner, Abby Yates, Melissa McCarthy, uh, because she has reissued a book that they co-authored some time ago on the paranormal, which is ruining Erin's chances for her more serious career, uh, tenure and her reputation. There's not a whole lot of time for recriminations about this, however, as along with engineer Gillian Holtzman, played by Kate McKinnon, they are called on to investigate what turns out to be an actual haunting in that. While this validation of their long-held beliefs gives them some cause for celebration, by the time subway attendant and soon-to-be fourth Ghostbuster Patty Tolan, played by Leslie Jones, calls them to investigate an actual ghost train, it's apparent that someone is creating and leaving gizmos that amplify the supernatural activities in the key locations around New York. Oh. That someone being Rowan North. Oh, I thought you were going to say Derek Akora. No. He doesn't have the technological wherewithal to do anything like this. He would just stumble about with his strange accent going, oh, this ghost. 
<laughs> hey, I'm in visitation. Ron North played by Neil Casey, a hotel janitor with an aptitude for paraphysics and an apocalyptic mindset. Once the team figure out what's going on, they're able to stop Rowan's plan, or so it seems, but it turns out that when Rowan is struck down, he can become more powerful than he can possibly imagine, fulfilling his plans to open the portal between this world and the nether realm, and leading a spectral invasion, including the takeover of the Ghostbusters' beautiful but impossibly stupid secretary, Chris, played by Chris Hemsworth. Uh, so, of course, it's left to Aaron and Co. to stop this nonsense. As mentioned, I find this to be an entirely acceptable film, and one that's reasonably enjoyable, putting it firmly on level peg with the original as far as I'm concerned. Sure, you lose out on Bill Murray except for a shoehorned cameo that's actually one of the low points of the film, but the ensemble is overall about as strong as the original, all things considered. In many ways, Wig and McCarthy are shown up by McKinnon and Jones, who certainly show more energy, but, uh, and admittedly by a tighter margin than I'd like, more jokes in the film land than don't, so it passes my first and only criteria for judging a comedy. Is it funny? Yes. Yes, it is funny. <laughs> Go to the uh, top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd hoped it would be a touch funnier, but this'll do, I'll take what I can get. Now that I've lavished, or at least lightly scattered, praise on the film, I suppose I get to pass a brief comment on that controversial trailer that started all this internet idiot parade. Mm. At least half of what the hater said was true, it's a terrible, terrible trailer, and it undersells the film greatly. Crucially, it's funnier than the trailer makes out, for some reason taking the least amusing and most awkward bits of character interaction is not the best way to sell a film, and also the special effects look better in the final film than as were glimpsed in the trailer. To unpack that a little more, what I mean is that in the context of the Mm. film, the ghost have a very intentional stylistic look to them. That's as shown in the trailer, but when it's taken in isolation, it just does look a bit like the shonky CG offcut that it was criticised for, but when you view it as part of the film, the aesthetic does make a bit more sense. It won't be to some, or perhaps many's taste, but it's bold and consistent and I like it well enough. That, however, is a sidetrack that's not worth pursuing a whole lot further. Uh, This remake proves that it's possible, if such proof were ever required, which of course that it is not, that a gender-reversed remake can work as well as an original. Perhaps some people would be better served reassessing why they still hold the original in such high regard. For me, both the original and the remake sit on the same level as a somewhat above-average FX comedy, and frankly... Neither of them are as good as the real Ghostbusters cartoon, so maybe watch a few episodes of that instead. At any rate, Ghostbusters 2016 has defied expectations as a decent film, and frankly, in this blockbuster season, I'll take what small wins I can get. <laughs> I Can I just go on record as saying, I am right behind this. I don't understand the pushback, and I am not going to patronise our female listenership with any kind of wet platitudes or anything, because there is not a woman in my life uh, who requires my defence, Scott. Yeah. Um, I, just, I would just like to say that as 51% of the, po- the population... Of the planet Earth, it's high time that women had better representation, and I think this is a a bold and, from what it sounds like, possibly occasionally awkward step in the right direction. And I wholeheartedly look forward to the chance to catch up with Ghostbusters, and not just because, as we say, I'm latterly um, a little bit more reserved about how much praise I heap on the original, but just because it's the right thing to do. And I don't know what you have to have going on in your life to get that angry about a film being remade amongst all of the goddamn remakes that we have to tolerate um, in the last sort of decade or so to make the focus of your ire that this be an all-female cast, I just don't understand. Financially, 
it is sound decision making look at any number of movies uh, like the Twilight trilogy in particular being the obvious example where female audiences have proven time and again and I'm not saying that those are the highest quality movies but films with budgets that are effects driven um, story driven uh, in the case of Twilight not particularly humorous but designed to appeal um, or certainly marketed towards a female audience not exclusively but primarily towards can be incredibly financially uh, successful almost as though <laughs> half of a potential audience or slightly more might actually be women who knew <laughs> so yeah i'm really looking forward to it i'm not the biggest fan of uh, mccarthy um, and her comic stylings but the others involved i keep i hear nothing but good things about the performances in this film i've been reassured that look even if you're not a huge fan of mccarthy look you put if you could put up with her in spy which i could then you'll find this entirely tolerable. Everybody is, that I know has been raving about Kate McKinnon. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just willing to take a punt on it without drawing any foregone conclusions, despite the fact that, yes, I too thought that was a shitty trailer. <laughs> Actually, McKinnon probably comes away as the, the standout of it. Wig and McCarthy are playing relatively more grounded roles and tend to get overshadowed by the kind of just somewhat deranged act that McKinnon is doing. It took me a little while to actually warm up to it for the first half hour. Mm. I thought it was quite annoying, actually. But by the end of the film, she's kicking all sorts of ass. So, yes, that's fun. Long may this sort of thing continue. I look forward to the first huge-budget, all-female, you know, lead-casted uh, summer tentpole movie that actually delivers a uh, an, an objectively excellent experience, which, from all accounts, yeah. Ghostbusters doesn't necessarily. But, again, everything anyone tells me about this film is that it's firmly in the top half the quality terms of the summer blockbusters that we've seen so far. So good. Yes. Long yeah, may it continue. Unfortunately, saying more about the state of blockbusters this year. Well, but, um, yeah. yes. As I say, we'll take what we can get. Yeah, absolutely. No fair play. Good on them. Good on them. And can we have more of that kind of thing, please? Which, uh, oh, on which note we move. Suicide Squid. Yes, the Suicide Squid. So again, <laughs> I think there was as much negative uh, forward for there was these. Some of these films came out. There was a period there, Scott, where trailers and promotional images were being released for films. And I think back to Terminator Genesis and that first promotional shot of Jared Leto as the uh, as the Joker in yeah. Suicide Squad has been them where people have just been really willing for some reason to completely wail on movies before yeah. we've seen any evidence whatsoever of what they are what's the crack with suicide squad because this seems to be massively massively dividing people yes and as one of the few people willing to mount at least a partial defense of batman versus superman i suppose i might have been looking forward to suicide squad more than most although i think by the time that some of the earlier teaser trailers came round combined with Deadpool's recent success, I think most people have been convinced of the idea of uh, the bad guys taking over the asylum and having a bit more fun than Zack Snyder allows any of his characters to have. Kind of, I think the tide kind of turned toward it being a bit positive, but however, the closer we've come to the release date, the more cloying and forced the marketing around it's become, to the point that I think it was starting to turn a lot of people off again from actually watching the thing. Yeah, it hasn't been aided by all of the, uh, the reshoots and stuff either, has it? No, but... However, as I have the bravery of a million lines, I nonetheless charged force into multiplex to bring you, dear listener, the truth. And the truth is, eh, it's all right, I suppose. <laughs> all hail me and my truth and uncovering powers. Uh, <laughs> extra, extra. 
<laughs> uh, right, if you've somehow missed the saturation press for the film, uh, this takes some of the DC Universe's most dangerous criminals and compels them through the threat of death by an implanted explosive to perform good, dangerous works in return for some time off their sentences. Headed up by Joel Kinnaman's Special Forces operative, Rick Flagg, and Karen Fugara's Katana, his bodyguard, they wrangle uncannily accurate hitman Deadshot, played by Will Smith, Joker's violently insane squeeze, Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie, a bank-robbing thug, Captain Boomerang, played by Jai Courtney, fire-wielding ex-gang leader trying to go straight, Diablo, played by Jay Hernandez, and monstrous crocodile thing, Killer Croc, played by Adawali Akrujie Agbiju, or something like that. This follows them as they're going into their first mission, after a suitable period of exposition to introduce these folks and their abilities. The mission winds up, in a sense, being to clear up their own mess. Puppet master Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis's other member of the squad, was intended to be an ancient, mystical, magical being of incredible power, <coughs> the Enchantress, currently time-sharing the body of June Moon, played by Cara Delvingi. Delvingi. Del- yes. Uh, <laughs> awkwardly enough, this is Rick Flagg's love interest. Uh, however, their method of controlling her is soon thwarted, allowing the Enchantress to release her equally powerful brother to start ripping apart downtown Midway City, so it's up to her dysfunctional team to somehow pull together and save the gay. Now, the first hour or so had gone a long way to putting my misgivings to one side. There's a lot of energy to proceedings, and while the narrative structure for introducing the characters and their abilities is a bit direct, shall we say, it's quite effective, and the throwbacks to how they've been captured allows for a number of nice world-building cameos from the likes of The Flash, Batfleck, and notably Jared Leto's aforementioned Joker. Crucially, the opening stretch has a great deal of fun that the trailer promised present. Then, it abruptly vanishes and doesn't return, making for a very flat last half of the film. It turns from a vibrant, relatively light-hearted, given the context, romp, into a boring, dark, grindy slog. The main cannon fodder enemy thrown at the squad's way are identical minions, unfortunate citizens turned into featureless, knobbly, black annoyances that look abysmal and insanely repetitive, and sadly, Delvingi is, uh, is just not really up to the task of convincing either as the film's ultimate evil or, come to think of it, the primary love interest either, leading to a finale that's really quite tough to care about. Which means we get to sing the same song that's afflicted so many films of late, comic book adaptations in particular. It's too long, there's too many characters. For so many of these films, I wish there was a director's cut that removed about half an hour rather than added it, Mm. and there's a much tighter 90-minute version of Suicide Squad in here that's a much more enjoyable film. At least Suicide Squad makes some nod to this by largely ignoring some of the characters. Jai Courtney gets a few comic relief lines into good effect, but plot-wise, he and Killer Croc could be removed with little effect. Likewise, Leto's Joker, who's running a subplot to get Harley back that's not focused on enough to be a significant part of the main film, could ultimately also be removed without touching the main story at all. A word on the Joker, I'm not altogether down on Leto's portrayal, and there's potential for him to appear as a decent, interesting villain for Batman down the line, but his presence here is ultimately an extended cameo that doesn't impact the central narrative at all, and should really have been trimmed greatly, even if that would mean seeing less of his wonderful goon squad, including that guy in a panda suit for no particular reason. For the rest of the cast, Kinnaman's fine enough, although he's got much better chemistry with Will Smith than with Kara. Uh, Smith carries a good deal of the film's weight, and he shows a charisma that I've not seen from him in many of his more recent and more serious films. Perhaps unexpectedly, Jay Hernandez comes across as the most impressive performer here, although I expect much of that comes from him having the only character that develops in any real sense. Much as Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn should wind up being obnoxious, as due to the 
fan favourite status. She's pushed into the centre of things, even when some of the other characters are much better placed to solve any of the problems at hand. She more or less makes the character charming enough to keep the teeth grinding to a minimum. But the major failing of the film is, to an extent, one of tone. There's a solid argument for saying that it's trying far too hard to be quirky in the first half of the film. That's not my issue with it, really. It's the complete fall-off of quirkiness in the second half, which, aside from the tonal whiplash, just makes the film a flat, lifeless, borderline boring experience for all that time. Taken as a whole, I suppose it struggles its way up to mediocre, based on the more entertaining early running, and I think it's not quite as bad as Critical Mauling suggests, but it's also not one that I can recommend braving a cinema trip for. Unlike Batman vs Superman, there's no attempt at asking any interesting questions about heroism. This was just intended as a fun romp, and on that basis it's a much greater failure than Snyder's film. It's not horrible, but to be honest, I'd still be giving this one a miss if I were you. I just I just can't help but feel that DC are desperately trying to keep pace with Marvel in everything they do cinematically, rather than just kind of doing their own thing. And I do wish that we would stop shoehorning as many characters into movies that are trying to fit a two-hour running time just to sort of satisfy, or possibly mistakenly, assume that they are satisfying the sort of the comic book audience because a movie like this there's no way to justify the inclusion of so many characters and it's what really puts me off the Avengers movies you can't focus on any one character or expect any kind of satisfying development when you have Mm. got seven or eight characters vying for screen time in the space of two hours it's just absolutely ridiculous it works better in a comic book format but guess what cinema's not a comic book Make the same sort of concessions you have to make when adapting, um, you know, novels. It's this really weird thing, and I I just think, um, I mean, I I haven't seen Suicide Squad, so I don't know, maybe I would love it. But uh, I've no interest in watching it whatsoever on the evidence of the Marvel's Avengers stuff that I've seen so far. Uh, I'm not sold on that concept of the the, uh, multi-character superhero ensemble uh, movie, and I've seen nothing about this in the promotional material or the reviews that I've read so far to suggest that it's going to convince me any different. is at the point where I'm just wishing that uh, someone at DC could lever this away from the influence of Zack Snyder because I'm pretty sure it's really his influence that's mm-hmm. coming through all these and the reshoots. Uh, look, uh, Zack Snyder's problem, I think, is that he really likes The Watchmen uh, and, and that, <laughs> that stood him in good stead when mm-hmm. he directed Watchmen, but yeah. now he's trying to do everything like that and yeah. it, it just really doesn't work for a lot of the, the stuff that he's been trying to do. Yeah, a lot exactly. of his ideas, I think, kind of work, but... Because uh, here's the news, the, the director's cut of Watchmen was long enough to actually support the characters and I actually enjoyed it far more than... Uh, my first viewing of the uh, the theatrical yeah. cut of uh, Watchmen, I found it um, a much different yeah. viewing experience. But I just don't see that there's any way to shoehorn that much character into... Uh, I can't think of a single film that's managed it. It feels like they're caught up in this arms race and they're almost entirely forgetting about an audience or imagining that they're playing to an audience who probably don't actually exist. Or if they yeah. do, would be in the huge minority. And the rest of us are sitting here thinking, just, just give us three or four of these characters and a yeah. much more satisfying experience. Or do you know what? Why isn't Harley Quinn a big enough character to support a movie of her own? Yeah. Right? Exactly. So, yeah, there's, poten- there's, there's, there's surely potential there. So, yeah, I won't be indulging in Suicide Squad anytime soon. I'm sure uh, at some point I will catch up with it, but it's probably going to be when it starts doing the rounds on satellite or something. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't put it very high up on your list. Um, no. Just as an aside, while it came out more or less at the same time, there's a comic, uh, sorry, an animated adaptation of Frank Miller's old comic book, The Killing Joke, which has been knocking around, which is, of course, one of the, the more respected Batman uh, comic book series. It's garbage. Don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> it's- 
I thought you were going to give a hearty counter-recommendation there. No, no. I mean, if you liked The Killing Joke, then you might we'll give it a watch. They've added a bunch of Batgirl stuff that really doesn't really add anything and is not particularly good. It's entirely superfluous. But the main problem that The Killing Joke has is that it's based off The Killing Joke, which might have been interesting back in the 90s, but it is dated very, very badly, and, and yeah, just should have been left back in the 90s. Uh, it's had certain elements of it sort of stolen by uh, Nolan, and particularly The Dark Knight, mm. um, and I think he's extracted the actual good bits of it, and what you're left with is, is just husk, and that's what's in the animated adaption. It, it's nice to see, or at least hear, Troy was his face and uh, Mark Hamill doing the voices of Batman and Joker again, mm. but that's really the only positive I took from it. The rest of it, it is just not particularly good. So also give that one a body swerve. Just think of all the time I'm saving you. <laughs> we thank you for your service, Scott. You'll be remembered. I suppose I will chat a bit about Midnight Special then, because on the evidence of box office, not a great deal of people saw it in the cinema, but it's, <laughs> yes. it's now available. And I don't necessarily blame them, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, it's now available on demand uh, and piqued my interest enough that I thought I'd pick up with it. Uh, when it uh, when it became recently available. The latest picture from director Jeff Nichols, who has built a loyal fan base with indie movie favourites such as Take Shelter and Mud. Here he reteams with Shelter's Michael Shannon for the tale of a father, Roy, who kidnaps his estranged son from a religious cult, the leader of which is the boy's adoptive father. The boy in question, Alton, played by Jaden Lieberer, as best I can interpret his name, is of interest to the cult as he possesses strange powers, and while these remain ill-defined throughout much of the movie. <laughs> yes. they, inc- they include decoding military satellite broadcasts, the information relays from which the cult use as the basis for an apocalyptic prophecy. Worst superpower yeah. ever. Yes, yeah, best superpower. <laughs> uh, apart from perhaps pulling said satellites out of the atmosphere and crashing into <laughs> petrol stations. I wasn't expecting that. There you go. Uh, if your sat-nav goes awry, then you know what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> as well as the duo of enforcers dispatched by the religious nutters to reclaim the boy at any cost. Alton and his father have incurred the displeasure of the FBI, and what with the government being not so enamoured of the notion that their secure data is somehow being ceded to the world by an eight or nine-year-old boy. Joining the road trip is Roy's childhood friend Lucas, Joel Edgerton, who has only recently rekindled his friendship with Shannon's character, but nonetheless is devoted to the cause of helping Alton and Roy evade the authorities while escorting the boy to a location where, apparently, the nature of his powers will be revealed. Midnight Special is a curious beast, at once individual and yet very much reminiscent of the kind of young adult adventure movies that we always protest they don't really make anymore. Having so far viewed none of Nichols' previous works, I cannot testify to how this, his first studio picture, relates in comparison of tone and style. But tone and style it certainly does have. Based solely on its director's reputation, I had expected Midnight Special to be densely plotted and thematically rich, and so the biggest surprise turns out to be that it is neither, coasting along as it does at a satisfyingly brisk pace almost entirely on atmosphere and suspense. As an exploration of the father-son relationship, Midnight Special is almost entirely redundant, other than highlighting the obvious devotion of Roy to his estranged boy and his willingness to do absolutely whatever is necessary to see him fulfil whatever his destiny turns out to be. Shannon is predictably excellent, and though he is perhaps working with less well-defined of a character than we would like once again, he manages to be just about the best thing in the movie. Young Jaden Lieberer joins a long list of recent young discoveries who punch freakily above their age, and throughout the movie he consistently manages the admirable feat of keeping pace with Shannon. Joel Edgerton similarly manages minor alchemy in another presumably purposefully underwritten role, 
which he fleshes out admirably, despite being given very little to work with. Further support comes from Kirsten Dunst, or Kirsten Dunst, uh, as I increasingly hear her name being pronounced, in a low-key but solid role as Alton's mother Sarah, Sam Shepard as cult leader Calvin, and Adam Emo Darth Driver as Sevier, the FBI contractor whose specialist field appears to be psychic pre-teens. <laughs> all of <laughs> It's quite the specialism. Uh, all of the supporting cast give uniformly strong performances, but, again, they are ultimately being held back by underdeveloped roles that seem in keeping with the movie's desire for mystery, but ultimately leave it with a real stretch in order to claim ultimate satisfaction. That stretch is too much for Midnight Special, and arguably the only reason it does not warrant five-star status. But this is at least a movie that demonstrates just how far you can advance on a bedrock of style, atmosphere, and quality performances. At heart, this is a modern retrofit of a quintessentially 80s theme, and while it almost satisfies purely by virtue of rekindling the wonder and adventure of that era, it is certainly frustrating to sit in Midnight Special's wake and imagine just how transcendent it might have been under circumstances of more satisfying character development. Nonetheless, it provides a strong array of evidence to suggest that Nichols, rather than J.J. Abrams, may be the more authentic 21st century heir to Spielberg's throne, and in comparison to that director's Super 8, a movie which hearkened to that same bygone era of optimism, this is objectively the far superior movie. While I cannot rightly offer unreserved recommendation of Midnight Special, I would plead with you to watch it if, like me, you were initially interested but dissuaded by a piss-poor marketing campaign which effectively sunk the movie in theatres. There's enough here to warrant a punt from the comfort of your own sofa, and it certainly makes me want to check out Nichols' previous works, not to mention speculate as to what he might achieve with further studio backing and the narrative safety catch firmly off. Uh, I wasn't sure whether you would have caught up with Midnight Special, Scott, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I caught up with it just last week, and, well, I'm not quite sure what to expect from this. Uh, i kind of been looking forward to it back when it came out in the cinemas, but then it vanished after a week, seemingly. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to be pushed as uh, an independent film sensibility take on a superhero origin story. And actually, it's an, certainly an indie film sensibility, but it's not on any story whatsoever, mm -hmm. which really is the main problem with the film. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there just isn't a narrative. We're following these people as things happen for no real rhyme or reason. It's, it's partially a, a chase film, fine. But the, there's no real indication of what's going on with uh, the, this kid's powers or where they came from or what they're doing. And the ending just kind of is befuddling when it gets there. Yeah, uh, it, it just it, kind of is. It just kind of throws a, pulls a narrative device out of its pothole and goes, yep, good enough, and, and stops. And there's no real explanation or anything about any element of the interesting parts of this film. And that's a real shame. You, you, I can see why it's going for that. You know, let's let's provoke questions and all that kind of thing. But you need mm. to have some basis to actually work from and sort of do that kind of projection thing if you're hoping to get people talking about it. Because it's too easy just to go, well, nope. <laughs> at the end of this film and just not think about it at all because you yeah. really have nothing to work with. I feel like you could almost get away with one or the other. You either have a really compelling story and not and you could almost get away with not focusing on the character relationships. Or, if you want to leave the story purposely vague, that's almost admirable. I'll leave it open-ended, leave it, leave it as a water-cooler discussion movie, but you really, you have to develop that central father-son relationship and give those characters some sort of arc which they just do not have. I'm still entirely unclear, having watched the film, as to 
how much foreknowledge of his son's powers uh, Roy apparently had because he seems determined to get him to this place uh, yeah. throughout the course of the movie despite proclaiming not to really know what's going to happen when he gets there as though he has some sort of instinctive understanding of, of what his son is destined to be um, if not quite the details of it but I just I'm not entirely sure that it sounds daft when you're talking about a film where a kid is reading encrypted satellite messages and <laughs> crashing satellites but I didn't that aside I didn't find I didn't find the relationship that believable in terms of the motivation of Roy I understand him wanting to get his son away from a religious cult but yeah. jeopardising everyone's lives and evading the authorities <laughs> seemed to me less believable in that there was no indication that the authorities necessarily wanted to do anything other than help him. Um, yeah. But then you start getting into all sorts of conspiracy rabbit holes that I'd rather not yeah. invoke. Yeah, it's just strange. It's, it's really frustrating for me because I did really enjoy Midnight Special on a surface level, but... Of all the films of this ilk and whatnot, I really expected it to be more like based on Nichols' track record, which I haven't I haven't observed firsthand as previous movies, but you know, enough people raved about them. But then curiously, I know enough people who have really taken this movie to their heart and think that it's just the best thing since sliced bread, and I'm kind of baffled to understand where they're coming from. Uh, because it it doesn't fully satisfy on any level, and it feels like with the slightest of tweaks. Um, this might have been something really special. Yeah, I like the atmosphere. I like the characters from what they managed to do with very little. Just, I can't get behind something that's so narratively bereft. I mm. mean, things like the the kid at points, he's, oh no, he's getting sick, he's getting sicker. Oh, he's better. He's better. Why? Never mentioned Just again. because. Fair enough. Because like, he absorbed but, some grass. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, uh, anyway. Um, oh, sorry, more actually, he desiccated some grass. <laughs> he's a murderer. Murderer of grass. <laughs> it's one of these films that I kind of recommend somewhat half-heartedly. Mm. Um, there's not really anything too much like it, and on certain levels, it's doing things better than a lot of other films. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's really tough to give it a, a full-throated uh, shout it from the rooftops recommendation to go and see it. Um, I would love if there were more blockbusters given this sort of sensibility, and we just kind of iterated on the formula a little bit to mm. actually tidy it up and, and, and nail it down into something, but. Uh, yeah, this just isn't quite it. It certainly does not deserve the evaporation from the cultural, from culture yeah. that it's suffered. Um, <laughs> from it the is, psyche, yeah. Yeah, it, it is a crime that something that is, in a number of respects, this good can bomb so heavily. And I think in, in that sense, it kind of deserves your support. But I'm kind of giving that more out of pity than I am out of respect. Yeah. So, I want to see more stuff like this made, but just made better. Yeah. Or more satisfyingly. I did still enjoy it a good deal, but there you go. And we... Roll forward onto Jason Bourne, right, Scott? Correct. Jason Bourne, the latest uh, revisitation to franchise, and I suppose we really should start things off by saying in what high regard I hold the first film. It's probably the best spy, certainly the best sort of action-orientated spy film of the 2000s. Its only competitor, as far as I can think of off the top of my head, is Casino Royale, which stole everything from the first Jason Bourne film. Mm. Had a tremendously strong start to the franchise, but hard not to say that it's been a victim of diminishing returns. For a period there, they just seemed to be making the same film again, but with a slightly different name. And then, after a period of that, when Matt Damon decided to give a, a pass, uh, they made the same film, but with a different actor. <laughs> um, which was even more of a disaster. <laughs> so I, w- I was open to revisiting it back with the uh, the classic cast. And, uh, of course, uh, Greengrass is back behind the director's chair as well. In this film, Julia Stiles' Nicky Parsons, an ex-CIA agent, tracks down Jason Bourne, uh, Matt Damon, of course, 
who's currently scratching out a living off-grid in the bare-knuckle boxing circuit. We've all been there. We've, we've all, we've all, we've all sunk that far. Um, apparently there's people aren't satisfied with uh, UFC anymore, so it's back to the old bare-knuckle pits. <laughs> so uh, she tells him of information pertaining to his past, at which point your deja vu meter may be clanking, and you may have to go and reset it, so I'll give you some time to do that. <laughs> Turns out that it's uh, concerning his father and, of course, the creation of the Treadstone program or Blackbriar or whatever one it was. Um, whatever Bramble name the Bush. first film was about. <laughs> Blackbeard, Peg Leg. <laughs> <laughs> but before Parsons can spill the beans, she's bumped off, leading to Bourne having oh, to no. seek out the hacker that Parsons was working for. Oh, uh, I like Julia Stiles. She did. Oh. Well, in, in this uh, in this continuity, at least. Yeah. Uh, while this hacker wants to take all of the information that Nicky Parsons attacked public, Jason's born is not interested in doing so, which is ironic, as it's his disclosure of information in the previous films, apparently, I can't remember that part, but I've no reason to doubt it, uh, <laughs> that paints him as public enemy number one to CIA director Robert Dewey, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Wait, are you mistaking Jason Bourne for Edward Snowden or something here? I don't remember him particularly releasing any information either. He did write. It says so. Um, ah, okay. And, yeah, uh, it was news to me too, but I was like, <laughs> okay, fine, whatever. Um, Tommy Lee Jones has uh, activated in Asset to deal with Bourne, this asset being played by Vincent Cassell, and of course Asset being code name for Hitman. That's pretty much your setup for Bourne being chased until a rogue subplot regarding a Facebook analogue headed by Aaron Kalur, played by Riz Ahmed, threatens obliquely to reveal the access that the CIA have had to their users' information and to revoke that, creating a bigger problem for Dewey and his asset to deal with. However, ambitious CIA operative Heather Lee, played by Alicia Vikander, sees this as an opportunity to gain a promotion by Dead Man's Boots and cuts a deal with Bourne, to have him save Kalur and, as a byproduct, take out the people obsessed with capturing or killing Bourne. So, that's the same film again then, but with an older cast, at least when you look at it from arm's length. Unfortunately, the magic's not really there this time. I don't mean to imply that this is anything less than a really competently put together film, but it's not one that's deviating much, if at all, from the established playbook, and consequently not one that's particularly engaging. Uh, also, and I don't like this argument much, as both actors are in far better condition than I am, but Matt Damon is 45, Vincent Cassell's 49, the climactic fight has a touch of the Moore-era bond to it, or perhaps you're the bit of town drunks fighting in a pub car park. It just doesn't have that dynamic and impactful fight sequences that the earlier films relied on so heavily, and that was perhaps the main draw of the first film, the, the kind of brutal fight scenes that it managed to put into a context that we've not really seen it before. And this is a pale shadow of its former self. Its attempt to reframe itself in the post-Snowden age, I suppose, had to be done, but it's led to some of the most idiotic computers or magic moments on camera yet. I'll take the CIA being able to take complete control of the German CCTV system on a whim, because CIA, why not, I suppose, they might be able to do that. But there's a scene in this film where what is a looks to be a circa 1998 dumb phone, like a Nokia 5110 kind of candy bar brick phone, is sitting on a table, and Heather Lee <laughs> exclaims that she can use that phone to delete files on an unconnected laptop in the same room, one that's in no way connected to it, because of malware, apparently, displaying ah, yes. a worrying misunderstanding of computers and phones and reality. <laughs> uh, 
absolutely baffling. It's like swordfish level nonsense. So, I mean, overall, it's as a film, it's it's fine. It has some suitably ludicrous chase sequences. Uh, particularly, there's a, there's a car chase sequence that seems to go on forever, but somehow manages to be relatively entertaining for all that, despite it just being an excuse for. You'll have seen it in the trailer, the uh, the big kind of SWAT car just destroying an entire mm. road full of cars on the Vegas Strip, which is a uh, Quite a spectacle, um, but you've seen that trick already. So overall, it's fine, but it's nothing special. And I think now this series has completely run out of the fumes that made the first film great. Time for bed, Mr. Bourne. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we discuss something a little bit more down-to-earth then, Scott, and Independence Day resurgence? Yes, (laughs) or Independence Day 2, the independencing. The independencing. (laughs) Feels just like a little under two months since we last discussed the Roland Emmerich's uh, sci-fi destruction set piece Independence Day because, well, it was. <laughs> uh, we t- talked about it in a recent Disaster Movies episode, and reviews would seem to indicate that this is a disaster in a far more conventional sense, but I figured I'd at least give it the benefit of the doubt, and I can't say it did a hell of a lot to repay my faith in it. Um, <laughs> but at the very least, it's not actively miserable. There's not a great deal of plot to pick over, as you might expect. Mankind's been doing its best to pull together in the last 20 years since the alien invasion and figure out some better weapon systems from the alien technology, knowing that another one is likely, and well, here it is. Um, there's a few strands for the narrative to pull together. The current director of Earth Space Defense, Jeff Goldblum's David Levinson, sees the arrival of an alien artificial intelligence and is promptly overruled on how to handle it, the military just blowing it up, uh, but not before it leaves a part of itself to help with the exposition in the final act. The flyboys doing the blowing up are largely headed by Dylan Hiller, played by Jesse T. Usher, who is the son of Will Smith's character from the original, and his estranged ex-buddy Jake Morrison, played by Liam Hemsworth. Down on Earth, the science department is headed up by a reawakened Dr. Brackish O'Conn, which I was not aware that that was actually his name, but uh, Brent Spiner's character. What a strange name. He re-emerges from a coma as the evil aliens approach, and there's also a strange subplot with the head of a totalitarian African state, Kembe Umbutu, played by Diobe Opare, whose country was waging a guerrilla war with the aliens, as it was home to the only mothership on the ground at the time of Goldblum's computer trick in the end of the first film. So, once this stupidly colossal alien ship appears, wrecks a ton of landmarks more or less arbitrarily, and starts digging a hole to the core of the planet to harvest it, because science, (laughs) humanity launches another counterattack that flops, before hitting on a wheeze to use that there alien AI as a bait for a trap to lure the alien queen out into the open and take it out, which they theorise will have the same effect, just as crippling, as an Apple PowerBook connecting to the alien's Wi-Fi and changing the router password or whatever it was that Goldblum did in the first film, which, as you might notice, in general terms, broadly the same plot as the first film, but without much of the charisma, and it turns out that that was the only thing holding that first film together. Um, In abstract terms, more or less every other element in this film is an improvement over the original, certainly effects-wise and such like, but without any real interest in the lead characters, it's tough to care one way or another about anything that's happening in it. The first film embraced and played up its cheeseball nature, and to be fair, I think Emmerich tries to go in the same direction with this, but he just doesn't have the characters in place to back it up. The only interesting characters are the returning ones, Goldblum, Bill Pullman, and Brent Spiner, and the new ones that are supposed to be carrying the action just don't make any impact. Shorn of this, it's just another CG showreel, and well, we've all seen enough of them, and while the effects work here is fine, it's not particularly noteworthy or worth going out of your way to see. Sure, this film is not great, 
but in a year where Gods of Egypt was unleashed upon an unsuspecting populace, it's hard to be too offended by this film. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to invoke Gods of Egypt again at any point soon. And in many ways, I wish you hadn't. <laughs> We're all trying to forget. Oh, there you go. May I afford short thrift to finding Dory at this point, Scott? Of course. Can I ask you a question, Scott? You may. Did you like Finding Nemo? Pretty much. You'll probably like Finding Dory. Sounds good. <laughs> it's in a very born like fashion. We're dealing with the same film here, Scott. Now, full, yeah. dis- full disclosure to everyone listening. I have not seen the entirety of Finding Dory, having made this my first trip to the cinema with my almost three-year-old daughter. Um, she has been kind of halfway Dory obsessed since someone bought her a, a Dory sort of etch-a-sketch storybook combo <laughs> thing a couple of months ago. So it seemed like it would probably be a fitting film to take her to, guaranteeing usually, as uh, Pixar does, some sort of level of quality and entertainment that suits both younger children and also their adult accompaniments. Yes, there's no great surprises really here. Perhaps the biggest surprise is that co-director Andrew Stanton uh, has gone on record to say that really he'd always wanted to do something further with Finding Nemo, but that he wanted to wait until the right story presented itself. And in the end, that story turns out to be exactly the same story (laughs) as Finding Nemo, except this time with Dory transposed into that role, which is kind of kind of revealed by the title Finding Dory. Events pick up about a year after, with a minor flashback to the introduction of Dory's character at the start of Finding Nemo. And now this time, Dory the Blue Tang has decided that she wants to set out across the ocean in search of her estranged parents. Finding out along the way that they are, or rather that they previously occupied and Dory herself was raised in, not a sea life centre, an aquatic institute. Uh, which appears to be a sea life centre, but from what I gather, everybody involved at Pixar decided to change the name of it after the after Bla- after Blackfish, of all <laughs> films, gave sea life centres a bad name for some reason. So this is this is just an aquatic institute that happens to be a massive theme park for families based around fish. Um, there's probably very little point discussing the plot of Finding Dory any further. You will undoubtedly. Uh, especially if you've got children, but even if you don't, you will undoubtedly have seen Finding Nemo at some point. I was not entirely on board with the reverence in which that film is heard. I've always found it fun, but maybe not as entirely satisfying as others make it out to be. I don't think it's the Naples Ultra of uh, Pixar's achievements that it's quite often cited as, but certainly I think very few people would argue that it's an enjoyable film. Finding Dory is quite literally the same film again, with events and characters transposed slightly, there is the return of the turtles, because everybody loved the turtles in the original, and they are here, apparently, to give Dory lift, just because everybody liked the turtles. Uh, every, <laughs> other char- every other character has a similar analogue. This time we have the new character of Hank the Octopus, who is voiced by Al Bundy himself, Ed O'Neill, and who assists Dory in her search for her parents in the Institute. Now, it's going to be uh, three months or so before I can finally catch up with Finding Dory on demand and find out what the hell happens in the last 20 minutes and whether or not Dory does in fact find her parents. I would assume she does, but I may well be wrong. Certainly for the hour and 20 or so that I witnessed this, it was perfectly acceptable entertainment. It seemed to be making my daughter laugh in all the right places, including some that I assumed she might actually be a little bit at her tender age. Uh, And with her tender disposition, I thought she might actually be a little bit startled at some bits and a little bit frightened. Mm. But all of those bits were the bits that she laughed loudest at. (laughs) So I have no doubt whatsoever that this will provide perfectly acceptable family entertainment for the intended audience, 
but I just I can't help but feel that it's a missed opportunity and that it seems and very much the way that uh, the Bourne films that we've just spoken about and also hearkening back to um, the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens as well, mm. feels like a lazy retread of the original movie. So I would suggest Finding Dory is the same. But of course, with the caveat that Pixar on a mediocre day are usually well ahead of everybody else at yeah. their best. Um, and therefore, yes, if you have children, there's probably no point in me saying anything because you will probably have seen Finding Dory already. Again, the box office certainly seems to suggest that you will have. I will assume that you had a good time. I found it perfectly acceptable uh, with very little not to recommend it other than the fact that there's a bit of fatigue there. But yes, it's fine. It's Pixar. It's beautiful to look at. It's entertaining. It's funny in mostly the right places and it will keep your kids occupied for 97 minutes of your life. So, And it's not Cars 2. It's not Cars 2. Something like Pixar now, I really understand that as a, as a parent, I kind of get it now that it doesn't really matter whether or not you're looking forward to this film, you're going to have to watch it anyway. <laughs> so again, my yeah. recommendation or otherwise is absolutely unnecessary for that portion <laughs> of our audience. For everyone else, it's Pixar, so you're going to see it anyway, anyway. Yes, and you will form your own opinion rightly, but I would suspect you will probably be broadly on board with my view that it is absolutely competent and well machined but nonetheless perhaps not as satisfying as a more original story might have been and i would suggest that andrew stanton and his team might have found with with that rich environment and those vibrant characters there surely must have been any other number of stories that we could have pursued rather than what seems to be um a startlingly obvious and uh, and i don't like to use the word lazy but it does feel lazy retread of the original film my only regret is you didn't make any Blue Tang Clan puns. Okay, I'll get working on those. <laughs> I'll try and fit some into the next episode. Do you have any yourself, Scott? My only regret is I couldn't come up with any Blue Tang Clan puns. <laughs> <laughs> oh my days. But let's blast on because anyone listening to this will be painfully aware of the fact that I had prepared nothing for Finding <laughs> Dory. So we'll probably wrap up with Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond, a film title I am incapable of hearing without automatically inserting the uh, riff from Star <laughs> Madness's Trek one. Beyond! No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Madness, for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so Justin Lin takes over the reins of the other successful Star franchise, what with J.J. Abrams off bothering the Star Wars universe. Not, it must be said, an announcement that filled this podcast with confidence, as Near. while Lynn set the template for the Fast and Furious becoming the commercial juggernauts that they now are, he also started their slide towards the exceedingly ludicrous, admittedly from a starting point that wasn't all that far away from ludicrous anyway, um, so if nothing else I was curious to see how he handles this. For the film, we have Captain James T. Kirk, Chris Pine, and his crew, who are now deep into their mission of flying about and looking at stuff again, and if... <laughs> Anything seemed to be getting a little bit bored by it all. <laughs> There's only so long you can you can travel the universe having a bit of a shifty. Aye, I mean, I was like, look at that. It's a planet and that, eh? Oh, look, asteroids and that, eh? Oh, space anomalies, let's fly into it. Oh, I'm bored of that now. That's essentially what they've been doing for two years, so they're tired of it. Job satisfaction on board the Enterprise is at a low, Scott. Yes. What seems to be a routine delivery of a gift to seal a peace accord goes a little south when some nervous little critters force Kirk to retreat and log the gift into the archives for safekeeping. Unbeknownst to him, this artifact is an ancient lost begotten of unusual power, and its re-emergence brings Kirk to the attention of someone who wants it rather badly. 
Heading back to a spiffy new Federation starbase, the Yorktown, that appears to have been designed entirely for impressive flybys with no concession whatsoever to practicality, they were almost immediately sent back out on a rescue mission. A ship has crashed on a planet inside an uncharted nebula, and only the Enterprise has the advanced navigational equipment to safely traverse it. So off they go, only to be attacked by the forces of Kral, played by Idris Elba, who is the MacGuffin Seeker Extraordinaire. In short order, Kral and his fleet of drones unceremoniously rip the Enterprise apart, kidnapping most of the crew in the process and crashing the saucer section into the planet below. Through various combinations of guile and luck, uh, Zachary Quinto's Spock, Carl Urban's Dr. McCoy, Kirk and uh, Anton Yelchin's Chekhov, and also Simon Pegg's Scotty, uh, escape onto the surface, although they're strewn about the shop. Scotty makes a new friend in the shape of Jali, played by Sophia Butella, who's similarly stranded on the planet, but was able to escape Kral's camp after her father sacrificed himself in a diversion, allowing her to escape. She's been busy fixing up a crashed, long-lost Federation starship, which allows Scotty to bring the gang back together. This leaves them merely having come up with a plan to save the crew and defeat Krull before he unleashes a bioweapon on the Yorktown, killing thousands, millions maybe, I forget, uh, which is a bit of a microcosm of the film in its entirety, I guess. While it's probably closest in spirit, if little else, to Star Trek IV, the one where they go back in time and get away on that, <laughs> in as much as it's completely disposable, lightweight, throwaway adventure, during which we learn pretty much nothing about anyone involved. If any characters were developed during this film, I must have been examining my popcorn at the time. I'm sure this may annoy a subset of people who take Star Trek altogether too seriously, which is to say in any way seriously at all, uh, but it didn't bother this casual fan too much. If I were taking this seriously, there'd be a great deal to be annoyed about in Star Trek Beyond, and most of it's the script. Uh, there's a cursory attempt at an overarching theme of how the Federation's unity goes against the survival of the fittest, war being an engine for progress and all that sort of thing, but it's laughably underserved and is one of the weakest rationales for committing horrendous atrocities that have heard in science fiction. But while the overarching vision is a little shaky, it's the smaller details that would surely be the most infuriating. I can't go into them in any detail without spoiling too much, but here's a couple of examples. There's a fully functioning motorbike on board that their crashed, long-lost Federation starship. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> you can presumably immediately come up with a list of reasons why that's nonsensical, so perhaps it's best that there's just no justification for it presented whatsoever. There's also an audaciously stupid signal jamming moment that plays like a homage to Mars attacks, and there's no way less credulity stretching. And also the final revelation on who Kral really is not only has no impact whatsoever, it also requires an asshole of mysterious future technology 11 to pretty much baffling effect of one in the, the audience. And, well, there's more to that, but I came here to praise Star Trek Beyond, not to bury it, because it is an honourable film. Um, it's certainly flawed and will be remembered, if it's remembered at all, as a very minor work in the Star Trek canon. It will, however, not be remembered as boring, or terrible, or boringly terrible, of which there is no shortage in the Star Trek <laughs> film uh, series. So, in all that, I suppose it's a win. I, again, I still can't advise that you rush out and see it. Perhaps it's worth gently strolling out and seeing it at some point, at your convenience, if you've nothing better to do. Justin Lin's take on the direction doesn't really seem to be any different to how J.J. Abrams would have done it. It's all quite flashy, and it's all just a little bit on the silly side, and I think that works for the kind of more... A swashbuckling Star Trek that they've had since the reboot, and that kind of fits reasonably well with this. The problem is not really one of direction, it's the problem with the script, which uh, is largely Simon Pegg's fault. <laughs> we'll blame him. Uh, I don't know. 
you know, you say it's Simon Pegg. I cringed when I found out how much input he had in the script. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, you don't know how much influence either the directors or anyone else had, but it, it just doesn't have the bones of a particularly interesting villain, or and it takes a few too many uh, shortcuts in the way that it's setting itself up. It's not a particularly well-done script, I don't think. It's serviceable and it's enjoyable and it has lots of little, nice little light-hearted touches and that makes it kind of an easy film to watch if you're not sort of too invested in the whole Star Trek thing. Certainly, I, I watched it and was reasonably happy with all of it and came out thinking, yep, like that well enough and I have not thought about it at all until I sat down to write some notes for this and I'm sure I will not think about it at all for the next year or so or until we do a kind of Star Trek retrospective podcast at some point. Um, it is entirely disposable. And there's a place for that. I, I enjoyed it more than a hell of a lot of uh, the other tentpole franchise installments that we've had during the summer. But again, as I've said before, more of an indictment of the state of uh, summer tentpole releases this year than <laughs> anything to do with the quality of Star Trek. Perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned, but yeah, you can easily skip it if you don't feel like it. Right, and that'll wrap it up. Yeah, just before we go, there's a few shout-outs to the folks on social media and our other podcast friends. Let's go and back, uh, just going while we're talking about Star Trek, at Fuggins on Twitter, uh, with small changes, thinks that Star Trek could have been a good film, but there's too many poorly executed scenes. Um, yeah, fair enough, again, I think it's, I, I'd argue less the execution, more the script. I don't think the script is particularly well written, which is the, the extent of all the problems in it. Also from Fuggins on uh, Midnight Special, he thinks it's a really, really good X-Files episode. Which I can see that being a, a fairly yeah, accurate. One. That makes sense. Yeah, I've actually been watching yeah. some of the the X Files uh, stuff recently because it's popped up on um, Netflix or Amazon, one of the two, and it's um, it, it does fit that quite well. It's it, that's unfortunately the problem with it. While you could do something like that in X Files and end it with no explanation, and you would hope that you might get some sort of mythology arc sometime a bit later on, you're not getting that with Midnight Special. You're going to have to make up your own satisfactory ending for it. So, bit of a best. Another comment in from at the Zach Burns 18. Zach Burns, of course. Uh, Suicide Squad had the potential to be good, but was executed in the most ham-fisted fashion imaginable. Imagine if Marvel had done Civil War in the same way, it would have been a travesty, but they built a complete universe. Um, I think they built a completely terrible universe in Civil War, but um, yeah, I, I largely take on take on board the point. Um, it's it's just shonkily executed, uh, Suicide Squad is. Sadly, another missed opportunity. Thank you, as always, for your feedback. Yes, indeed. So thanks for that. And, of course, anyone else who's been interacting with us on the, on the Twitter, of course, and uh, another plug to our friends over at the Magic Lantern podcast, that Lantern cast. They've just released an episode on Waiting for Government, which is one of my favourite Christopher Guest films. So it's certainly well worth looking into if you haven't subscribed to them already. Some feedback on our Shutter Island Jacob's Ladder episode as well. We've at least convinced at least one person to go back and take another look at uh, Shutter Island. So Matt Toller's uh, going to give Shutter Island another try. Didn't dig it on first watch, but the wife likes it. And uh, yeah, that's largely what I was saying. I did not like it all that much in first watch. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, the more you think about it, the better it becomes. So yeah, definitely encourage you to. That's worth a lot, I think. Indeed. Thanks for persevering with us for another uh, episode. Yes, indeed. Uh, we shall be back. Uh, in short order with a look at the films of the recently departed Michael Cimino, best known of course for the Deer Hunter so we'll be looking at his oeuvre and reporting back on that and I hadn't really seen any of his work actually until this point so it's been interesting to start taking a look at those and we'll give you a full report in 10 days or so. So yes until that time, thanks very much for putting up with us I will sign off I've been Scott Morris very well, and I've uh, been joined, of course, by my good friend Alkovich. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, let those laugh who win. <laughs> <laughs>
little bit of Barry Lyndon for you there, Scott. Yes. Just because I got to see it in a cinema last night. Yeah. Was it bigger on the big screen? It was quantifiably bigger. <laughs> but was it better? It was bigger than Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Bye.